Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. In the early 700s, the Moors conquered southern Spain, the land they dubbed Al-Andalus, now known as Andalusia. Although by 1248 the Christians had reconquered most of the peninsula, the Emirate of Granada, ruled from 1230 by the Nasrid dynasty, remained Moorish for seven centuries. A great testament to Granada's golden period under the Nasrids is the Alhambra, from where I speak to you today. That palace of delicately carved plasterwork with stars and arches and cupolas and inscriptions in Arabic. Its geometric patterns and ceramic tilework, its gilded wooden ceilings and its courtyards of reflective pools of water make it a paradise on earth. But it was not to last. From 1482, the forces of the most Catholic kings, Fernando and Isabel, known in English as Ferdinand and Isabella, set out to make Granada part of their kingdom. To explore the lost paradise of Granada, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Grayson, Emeritus Fellow in Spanish at Murray Edwards College, Cambridge. She's the author of The Moor's Last Stand, How Seven Centuries of Muslim Rule in Spain Came to an End, and her most recent book is Lost Paradise, The Story of Granada, published by Head of Zeus in 2021. Dr. Grayson, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Granada and your wonderful book, Lost Paradise. Maybe we should start with that idea, actually, this idea of Granada as a paradise. We have very much a sense today that that idea remains. But at what point was it a paradise, I suppose? Thank you, Suzanne. I think the first thing to say about that is that the idea isn't some kind of, I don't know, romanticised imaginary fantasy. It was actually a lived reality. It was a real paradise to the people who were there. And that goes back, actually, as far as the ninth century. 
when the Muslim sage Abd al-Malik, who was writing at that time, described the whole environment as a kind of rural Arcadia, a paradise. And you can see that attitude as well in the poetry of the Nazareth poets, you know, who wrote their verse on the walls of the Alhambra. And you can see it when Sultan Boabdil handed the keys of Granada over in 1492 to the Christian monarchs. He said, King Ferdinand of Aragon, Sir, these are the keys of this paradise. So it was very much perceived by its inhabitants as a paradise. And also, I think, by the people who came after, by 19th century travellers and tourists, by Laurie Lee, George Borrow, who all expressed a similar idea. So I think it's this combination of a wonderful natural environment, a wonderful climate, its beauty surrounded by mountains, its abundance particularly. It all contributed to this idea of it being a paradise. But interestingly, the whole idea of a lost paradise didn't really come into being until after 1492, when the idea took hold in the minds of Muslims who felt that they had lost something very precious, and to them it became a lost paradise. And that's an idea which is still alive in Muslim culture today. And we might think of an example of the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, who died in 2008. He was a Palestinian exile, and he wrote very touchingly about dispossessed people of Granada because he understood what it felt like to be banished and exiled. So it's a living idea, I think. We're going to be talking a lot about banishment and exile and exploring 1492 and its consequences in some more depth, particularly for Granada. But I guess it might be helpful to start by thinking a little bit more about the Nazareth state of Granada. What had it been and what was it like by the late 15th century? It came into being in the year 1237, in fact, when the first Sultan Mohammed I founded the city. And there had been a settlement where Granada stands before that. He actually founded it as the city of Granada at that time. So effectively, up to the last decade of the 15th century, it had been a completely Arabic-speaking Islamic state, really on the Western fringe, if you like, of the Muslim empire at that time. And it had been an absolutely flourishing place. It was very much admired in the rest of Europe as a place that was wealthy, that had a very abundant trade routes with Europe, with Venice, that sold silk, it sold oil, it sold all sorts of fine food ingredients, traded with Europe. So it was a flourishing place, but it gradually became more and more isolated, really, from the rest of Spain because of the pressure put on by the Christian monarchs of the rest of the peninsula at that time, who wanted to reconquer, as they saw it, as much of the territory they felt they'd lost to the Muslims as possible. Eventually, Granada was the last bastion, if you like, of Islamic rule in Spain. So I suppose its great achievements prior to that had particularly were the building of the Alhambra, which started in the 14th century and has become, as you know, the iconic symbol, really, of Granada's Islamic heritage and Spain's Islamic heritage, I think, as well. But there was a great pressure then being exerted upon the Nazareth state from outside by the Christian forces who were constantly raiding the frontier, besieging areas of the frontier. And the Nazareth state also partly destroyed itself because of the internal conflicts, which in a way was something that typified the whole of Islamic rule in Spain, that it was beset by, if you like, tribal conflicts and struggles 
it was the combination of those two factors that led to the last war for Granada starting in 1482 and finally the sort of the fall of the city to the Christians. Let's delve into that in a little bit more detail. Tell me a bit about the royal family of Granada and that discord that you were talking about. There was a kind of history among the Nazareth sultans of violent death. Sultans were poisoned by their offspring. Their prime ministers or viziers were often poisoned or murdered. It was a place of violence as well as being a kind of paradise. It's such interesting contrast because it was such an enigmatic place in a way. There was an almost sort of tradition, if you like, that sounds a strange thing to say, of what they called the Red Death, which was the murder of sultans and viziers. So it was a very precarious place. And by the time we got to Boabdil, the last Muslim sultan of Granada, in a way a pattern had been established which was almost destined. I think he was a man of destiny, that he was the legitimate heir to the throne after his father, Abdul Hassan, died. But the great point of conflict really was that his father took another wife, not Boabdil's mother, and effectively abandoned Boabdil and his family or didn't see them or have anything to do with them much except when they were fighting each other. And that caused the final rift, really, which I think was the nail in the coffin of the Nazareths, to be honest, because they fought and fought over it. And finally, Boabdil usurped his father and established himself on the throne. Because I suppose the other danger was that if his father had children with another wife, then Boabdil had a rival to his succession. It absolutely was. That was perceived as the big problem, certainly. And his mother, Aisha, was absolutely determined that her son should rule as the legitimate heir to the throne. And I'm sure there was a good measure there of absolute jealousy, too. Of course, what also rubbed salt into the wound, if you like, was the, the woman his father married as his second wife was a Christian. She was a converted Christian. She'd been captured as a Christian slave by some of his men and she converted to Islam. Although, interestingly, after the fall of Granada, she reverted back to Christianity again and became a lady of some property in Granada. So she would bend like a willow, depending on what was necessary, wherever the wind was blowing. And as you said, there's these external factors. We've got, of course, Ferdinand and Isabel, who have, up until the sort of late 1470s, been focused on war elsewhere, but now turn their attention to Granada How was Granada won by them? I think that's a very interesting question, Susanna, actually, how it was won. One point, I think, is that the idea of actually reconquering Granada took hold quite late. Ferdinand, who was the King of Aragon, hadn't really got a clear idea that he wanted to conquer Granada, I don't think. He thought things were ticking over quite nicely the way they were. He had the last Sultan Boabdil really under his thumb in the last 10 years prior to 1492, and it was all going fine. It was really Isabella who was the driving force behind the final push to reconquer, as they saw it, the last Muslim territory that had been taken from them originally. And so they did it by quite remarkable means in a way, in that they had better weapons than the Muslim forces. The Muslim forces were quite depleted in terms of their treasury because they were constantly paying huge amounts of tribute to the Christian monarchs. So in a way, they'd almost sort of funded the Christian army in a strange sense. And the Christian army had access to really good up-to-date artillery and even to cannon, which 
they brought to Granada by literally remaking a lot of the roads, because the way to get to Granada, as you know, is surrounded by this huge mountain range, and so they couldn't easily access it. That was one of the reasons why, for centuries, it had made it such a wonderful fortress, because it was so impregnable. Ferdinand had great roads driven through the mountains, it's a mountain dug out and moved so they could get all this heavy equipment in to devastate really the surrounding villages and towns in the big fertile vega around the capital. And then ultimately they did something which was incredibly intimidating and threatening in that they built a whole new town just outside Granada called Santa Fe, still there and thriving today. And they brought their army of 80,000 men and set them all up there, and they sat there in the last winter months before surrender as a threatening force. The great worry was, of course, that they would use some of their weaponry on Granada, destroy the precious Alhambra, devastate it. In the end, it was a siege which forced the surrender because the inhabitants of Granada, as in sieges usually, were deprived of any food, and they were desperate, so the Sultan had to call time and call for a surrender. 80,000 is such a huge army for the late 15th century. It's really quite extraordinary. But what a cruel way to win it. I mean, they were so determined. Why did it matter so much to them, do you think? I think, as in everything Ferdinand and Isabella did, power and prestige was the key motive. Often, of course, masquerading as being piety, religious piety being the main reason. I think Isabella always presented herself as being extremely pious, Ferdinand probably less so. Ferdinand was quite unashamed in admitting that he wanted to get power. And so I think that they saw themselves as an almost invincible couple. Now their two regions, Castile and Aragon, were united by their marriage. It gave them tremendous power and control over the peninsula. And so they saw it really as the culmination of this great historical struggle from a Christian point of view to reconquer land since the invasion of 711 would be down to them and they would be remembered for it, which of course is the case. But also they knew it would give them extraordinary power and prestige in the rest of the world and in Europe. And it was precisely that which enabled Isabella to forge an alliance with Henry VII of the Tudors. And of course, by marrying her daughter, Catherine of Aragon, to Henry's son. That gave an Anglo-Spanish alliance against the French. So there was that, and it also gave Ferdinand and Isabella power, the authority, and I think the impetus to conquer more. They'd conquered Spain now, they ruled it effectively. Now they looked outside Spain and were able, therefore, to send Columbus on his first voyage of discovery to the Americas in that same year, in August of 1492. Did you know that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? Or that cornflakes were invented to have precisely the opposite effect? Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in school, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets, wherever you get your podcasts. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. extent was Muslim Granada religiously tolerant? It was very tolerant. It had a significant Jewish population. Of course, it had no Christian population, not a native Christian population anyway. Some Christians did live there who'd come for trade or for other business reasons. But effectively, it was a place for Muslims and for Jews. Our deal in the terms of the surrender of the city was very careful to ensure that the Jews had the same treatment as he thought they would have or hoped they would have as the remaining Muslims in the city after 1492. So Muslim rulers and societies have been very tolerant of other religions. It's part of their ethos and provided that certain taxes were paid, they were very happy to rub along side by side with them mostly. So what happened then in 1492 to the Jews was something of a terrible shock. Yes, so of course we have the passing of the Alhambra Decree, stating that all Jews must become Christians or leave Spain by the 31st of July, 1492. It's such an extraordinary decree. What provoked such a decision by the Catholic monarchs? Or maybe the clues in the title, I suppose. It's a question that historians have puzzled over, because, precisely because it was such a sudden decision. Jews were being appointed by Isabella and Ferdinand in senior positions at court in the March of 1492, and then suddenly this decree was issued about a month or so later. So I think the reason mainly was that it was part of the drive for racial and religious purity. It was a kind of ethnic cleansing, unfortunately, which turned Spain after 1492 into a very closed, limited, restricted society, a society of one language, one religion, and it cut off any sort of relationship with other cultures, if it possibly could. So I think it was an extremely detrimental 
thing to have done. And I think that was the main reason why the Jews went into exile. They could convert to Christianity, but of course, the majority of them didn't want to do that. Some of them did convert and became what were called conversos. Then, unfortunately, once the Inquisition got its teeth into them, they suffered probably even more than the Jews who hadn't converted and had been exiled. So it was altogether a very, from our point of view anyway, (laughs) a reprehensible thing to do. I think as well, Ferdinand thought that he would get a lot of money from the Jewish coffers because the Jews weren't allowed to take any money with them effectively, or very, very little. So he commandeered everything they left behind. Do we know roughly how many Jews were expelled from Spain or how many left in the light of the choice between expulsion and conversion? It's difficult to get accurate numbers. The Jews weren't huge in number in Spain anyway. I think probably as many as 10,000 went. And do we know anything about their experience of this trauma? Do we have any evidence from any of those who departed? Yes. I mean, there are some accounts, one written by the Christian royal historian Bernaldez, who describes their journey to the ships that were waiting to take them into exile. And he describes how many of them were ill, died along the way. And he describes a very, very touching, terrible scene, really, when the Jews actually arrive at the coast and see the sea, which many of them had never seen before. And he says that they set up a most terrible wailing and lamenting and it was quite a terrible sight so I think that their suffering was extreme as they went into exile and when of course they reached wherever they were going they were spread all over Europe many of them went to North Africa it was a completely different society they were Spanish effectively Spanish people and they didn't know anything about North African society or any of the other societies they went into although some of them did actually end up having quite successful lives. I think there's a record of a Jewish family of doctors from Granada who went to the court at Constantinople of the Ottomans and set up a very lucrative medical practice there. So it wasn't all doom and gloom, but I think the tragedy really was the feeling of betrayal, that they'd been betrayed, and they suffered greatly en route to exile, certainly. And as you said, those who remained didn't fare much better. Tell us what happened to the conversos. Really, it was rather similar to what happened to the Moriscos, who were the Muslim converts to Catholicism as well. The Inquisition was absolutely hell-bent on digging out what they saw as heresy. It was their sort of byword, if you like. And so they went out actively seeking heresy and asking for people to denounce others as Jews, as practising Muslims as well. And people were so frightened of the power of the Inquisition And so, sadly, the converted Jews and the Muslims came under terrible persecution. Many of them were burned at the stake in autos da fe, you know, the big public execution ceremonies that were held throughout Spain. And some were held in the main square in Granada as well. And many were imprisoned for a very long time. So they had a terrible time, basically. I mean, this sense of trying to really govern what somebody believes in their heart of hearts and that... If it isn't orthodox, it can lead to such punishment, burning alive at the stake. is extraordinary. It is something that is one of those times in which the past very much feels like a foreign country and we have to sort of really kind of leap over that mental gap between us and them to understand their actions. You mentioned that the other group of people being affected were the Moriscos. So 
Ferdinand and Isabella have removed the Muslim sultan. To what extent, though, did Granada essentially remain an Islamic city? It was within five years of the agreement, the surrender agreement, Ferdinand and Isabella reneged on the terms of that agreement, which had initially, Boabdil had decreed that all Muslims left in Granada should be allowed to continue practicing Islam, and that's what he believed would happen. But very soon after, there was enormous pressure on the Muslims to convert, and to the extent that they were prohibited from practicing their religion, they were prohibited from wearing Muslim clothes, from dancing, and so on. And so basically, they turned into, if you like, a society which was Christianized on the outside, but lived a secret sort of covert life, many of them still practicing as Muslims. They were called crypto-Muslims. Some Muslims did convert. Some of them became priests, which may seem rather strange to us, but that was the case. But I think, in addition to that, although Ferdinand and Isabella began the process of Christianizing the city by changing its architecture, by changing its cityscape. In other words, converting the minarets of mosques into churches throughout the city, straightening the roads, you know, trying to change the configuration of the Muslim city with small winding streets into a place with much bigger, wider roads. In fact, they could never really erase Granada's Muslim nature. And in fact, we know that some Moriscos carried on living in Granada, if you like, hidden in plain sight right into the 18th century. They probably carried on, you know, longer than that. So despite all the efforts that were made to create this Christian heritage and history for the city, it couldn't deny its Muslim heritage. You just had to look at it. You just had to look at the Alhambra, and it was all there around you, you know. What evidence do we have of the Muslim perspective on these years, or or of Granadan citizens who were... Muslim? Did they keep any records that we, as historians, can consult? Yes, there are some interesting records, specifically at the time around just after 1492. They were written by a young man from a place called Arevalo in Castile, and he travelled to Granada shortly after 1492, and he met some of the Muslim community there, one of them being a very elderly lady, came from Ubeda. She was a kind of legendary figure. She'd worked at Boabdil, Sultan Boabdil's court, and dealt with a lot of his manuscripts and documents. And the young man from Arevalo interviews her, and she gives a very fascinating account of the terrible book burning that took place in one of the squares of Granada, instigated by Cardinal Cisneros, the Inquisitor General at the time, where all Muslims were ordered to bring any books they had accept medical texts and put them on a bonfire. And she describes the real distress in the Muslim community at the destruction of their heritage, of their knowledge. Of course, some of the books were saved, very few of them, and hidden, but the vast majority were destroyed, which is a terrible thing to us, I think. So that was one very dramatic instance of an account by a Muslim person at that time. And of course, it was perceived by this lady and by other people in the community as being a terrible, terrible tragedy that they had lost Granada finally to the Christians. It wasn't just loss of their state and their city in itself, but also the awareness that that they'd lost what was nearly 800 years of Muslim presence in the peninsula and Muslim rule, and it was a very heavy burden to bear. How interesting that we have in that young man going in 
interviewing the courtier of Boabdil's court. You know, it's a kind of journalism, isn't it, that he's testifying to these people's experiences, interviewing them, writing them down, even as the interview says all of these records have been lost, all of this evidence of Muslim culture has gone. And I suppose it's interesting to contrast that with the evidence that we have of Christian visitors to the city in these years. What did they make of it? We have, in 1496, an interesting visitor to Granada who was a German doctor, Hieronymus Munzer. He wrote a very interesting account of how much he admired the Islamic city, which he described as still having lots of working mosques. He admired the water system that was available and enabled people to keep clean and hygienic as he saw it. And so he describes in some detail what worship was like, what people wore when they went into mosques, how the ceremony was conducted. So he actually, interestingly, gives a very first-hand account by someone who was not a Muslim of life at that time. And he doesn't, interestingly, really mention anything about the kind of religious conflict and difficulty. He's mainly interested in the phenomenon of a completely different culture that he's experiencing. He visits the Alhambra as well and is shown round by the new governor and admires it and marvels at it. So, yes, he's very much an advocate for Muslim society and culture of that time, which is an interesting contrast in a way. And what becomes of Granada in the 16th century? Granada in the 16th century is intent upon writing a new history for itself in trying to recreate itself as sort of new Rome or new Jerusalem as well. So I would say the keynote of the 16th century in Granada, as elsewhere actually in Spain, was a culture of ambiguity and fakery and secrecy. Fakery for two reasons, really, in that the Christians were writing all these fake versions of history. There had always been a feeling that the Christians wanted to link their history back to Visigothic times of Spain, which were the Visigoths were the rulers of Spain from about the 5th century to 711, and they were Christians. They converted to Catholicism, and so Spain had sort of nominally been Christian then. And so I was looking back to that time. What was particularly interesting was that these histories wanted to forge a Christian identity that went further than that. And this chimed very much with an extraordinary event in 16th century Granada, which was discovery of a series of archaeological artefacts on the Sacramonte mountain, which were lead discs containing religious texts that purported to be Christian. And Granada was delighted about this because the texts expressed idea that the first bishop of Granada had been a Christian back in the first century and he'd come to convert the population. And so although he was actually an, an Arab bishop, he was a Christian. And so these seem to be proof, these lead discs, of Granada's Christian identity. What wasn't known at the time, but was found out much later, of course, was that they were actually, if you like, fake texts constructed by members of the Morisco community who wanted to validate their position as being legal in a climate where there was talk of them being expelled from the country as well. And they wanted to prove that they could justifiably say they were Spanish people and could remain in Spain. So they were very interesting, ambiguous documents. So this whole amazing scandal grew up around these texts, which in very many ways epitomised the whole culture of forgery, secrecy, covert 
things going on. Yes, and sort of a required inauthenticity in order to appear acceptable in this increasingly intolerant society, which they would, of course, have thought about as an increasingly pure society. But there's one final group we ought to talk about that were expelled by Ferdinand and Isabella. Can you tell me about the 1499 decree against the Gitanos or the Gypsies of Spain? Yes, this was another part of the ethnic cleansing programme of Ferdinand and Isabella. The gypsies had come relatively late to Spain, the late 15th century, from other parts of Europe. For the first few years that they were in Spain, they got on very well. They were given passes to various cities. They were given authority to trade. They were itinerant, of course. But Ferdinand and Isabella seized upon the ones that went to Granada, precisely because they weren't paying any taxes. And so they were suspicious of them as well. So they said that either they had to settle in one place and make a proper living so that they paid their taxes justifiably, or they had to leave. So in a way, they were another marginalised and persecuted group by the Catholic monarchs, just like the Moriscos, just like the Jews were as well. Many of the gypsies of Granada decided they would stay and settle down there, and they lived in the caves of the Sacromonte. And in a way, that was a very good thing for Spain because they brought flamenco with them, and they brought it to Granada, and they brought it to Seville. There's a big debate about whether Granada or Seville is the origin of flamenco music. Granada believes it is, but then it spread to the rest of Spain. So the gypsies did eventually establish communities for themselves in Spain, but they became less itinerant. Because they were impoverished people, they had to resort often to stealing, and they got a very bad reputation. So, yes, it wasn't an entirely happy time for them around that period, I don't think. And how interesting that, that they gave to Spain something that most of us would consider to be utterly intrinsic to Spanish culture in the form of flamenco. I mean, I think flamenco is a kind of fusion. I mean, certainly it is gypsy music, gypsy dance and song. I think it also is a very unique band of Andalusian gypsy music, which in many ways brings in elements of what was traditional Andalusian song and music as well. So it's a kind of multicultural music from that point of view, if you like. In other words, essentially Granadan. If a listener visited Granada today, what would they see that would have been there in the 1490s or the early 16th century? I suppose the, the most obvious thing they would see would be the Alhambra Palace, which is Spain's top tourist attraction. It has two and a half million visitors a year, I think. And, of course, it's a palace that has been and is being restored, which is on one level a good thing, but it doesn't really look anything like it would have looked in 1492 now. One reason why it doesn't, of course, was that when King Charles I became king in Spain, he was a Holy Roman Emperor, he had an enormous palace built in the precinct of the Alhambra. So you have this very large Renaissance building, which looks incredibly incongruous amid the original buildings of the Alhambra. So I think that's one thing that would be different. Another area, I suppose, which looks more or less the same would be the Albaicín, which is the area traditionally where Jews and where Muslims lived and still do live. I mean, if you go to the Albaicín now, it's rather like walking into a North African town, actually, because you can hear people speaking Arabic around you. There are notices, you know, about prayer in mosques round about. There's a new mosque now in Granada, which was 
inaugurated in 2003. So it very much feels as if you're walking into a different world. And of course, in lots of ways, that the configuration of the Albay theme with its intricate alleyways and winding streets, narrow streets, is, is as it would have been in the time of the last Sultan. So particularly those two areas, I would say, much of the rest of what remained has been unfortunately demolished. A lot was demolished in the 19th century to modernise the city in line with other European cities. And sadly, an awful lot of interesting buildings were lost. But how amazing that these areas and the substance of the Alhambra, even if it has this really great Renaissance building put in the middle of it, even that that remains. Yes. Well, I think, you know, it's one of the last places in Europe where you can actually visibly see where you can touch the Islamic heritage of the Middle Ages. And it's quite a remarkable thing. And I suppose one thing we should say that many of my listeners would be familiar with is one very tangible indication of the presence of Granada in the imagination of people since is in the form of the pomegranate and how that was carried and became Catherine of Aragon's symbol and and sort of is everywhere across Tudor places in the UK. Yes, it's it's true. And of course, the pomegranate, well, Granada, as you know, means pomegranate. And what is fascinating about it is that I think it's a symbol of the multicultural nature of the city because, as you said, you, you can go about the city if you're observant and you can see it everywhere. You know, it's on street signs, it's on manhole covers, of the image of the pomegranate. And it was an image that meant something to Jews and to Christians and to Muslims alike. It had religious meaning for them. And in fact, it was the Muslims who first gave Granada its name, Garnata Granava. As you said, the symbol was used by Isabella and Ferdinand on their shield. And of course, by Catherine of Aragon, she used it, as you said, as a symbol. It's still on the Spanish shield. So, yes, it's a very resonant image, I think, and one that, yes, that we can identify with. I mean, pomegranates are popular, aren't they now? Spain's still the biggest exporter of pomegranates in the world. I love the fact that I've always thought of it as Catherine of Aragon identifying with her parents conquering Granada, but it has this kind of subversive quality of actually carrying with it the sense of being multicultural. It really does, and that's a very good point you've made there, that that's something fundamental to the whole nature of Ferdinand and Isabella's relationship with Granada. That Yes, it was the great symbol city of their supreme conquest. On the day of the handover of the keys, they and their courtiers all turned up in Moorish dress. Well, you could say that that's a sign of their admiration for the culture as well. But also, it was, I suppose it was suggesting, um, really, they had appropriated it. So all that whole idea of their attitude, I think, to Granada is a very ambiguous one. But however they presented it, Ferdinand and Isabella, whether they dressed in Moorish costume, used the pomegranate, as you say, they could never erase the very fact of Granada's Islamic identity. Well, thank you so much for introducing us to that and giving us a flavour of your magnificent book, which is Lost Paradise, the story of Granada, and everybody should go and get a copy. It's produced by Head of Zeus, and as usual with Head of Zeus books, it's absolutely gorgeous to look at, absolutely stuffed with pictures and a really wonderful read, and, of course, given us a flavour as well of this remarkable city. Thank you so much.
Well, thank you, Suzanne. And the book is actually coming out in paperback in July, so with a new funky cover, so that will be available as well. Wonderful. That's good to know. So that's July 2022 and you can get a paperback copy. Though I do think the hardback's really rather wonderful, so either one will do. Thank you very much, Susanna. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.